Lit Service is brought to you by Writers Clearinghouse. Writers Clearinghouse empowers authors and agents by providing low-cost, professional evaluations of entire manuscripts that tell you exactly where your manuscript stands and what you can do to improve it. To learn more, visit www.writersch.com. Listeners of Lit Service will receive 20% off an evaluation by using the code LITSERVICE20 at purchase. Now here's the show. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Lit Service, where we're fans of fiction and purveyors of dodgy writing <laughs> advice. I'm Leah, and I'm from Pleasant Grove, where I once raced a free spirit cow down the interstate. My name is Caitlin Sankster, and I am from Grass Valley, which is exactly the kind of place you think it is. My name is Kristen, and I hate this question because as a military brat, there's no good answer. But I'm going to say I'm from Virginia, and it's the most magical place on the planet. Okay, I'm Kate Watson. Thanks so much for having me. I'm from a village in Canada called Sterling, Alberta, with a population of fewer than 1,000 people. Oh, dear. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we'd like to welcome our guest, Kate Watson, who is the author of Seeking Mansfield, Shoot the Moon, and Love Struck. Tell us about your books, Kate. So my first two books, Seeking Mansfield and Shoot the Moon, are contemporary retellings of Jane Austen's Mansfield Park, that's Seeking Mansfield, and the second, Shoot the Moon, is an adaptation, a loose adaptation of Charles Dickens' Great Expectations, with a dash of the 90s poker movie Rounders, which it turns out is exactly what teens want these days. So, uh, and then my third book, Love Struck, that just came out, is a Greek mythology rom-com about a Cupid who sticks herself and falls for her own charge, and she's going to have Hades to pay. Ooh, cute. Very intriguing. To our listeners, be sure you check those out. So we spend a lot of time on this podcast talking about world building and sci-fi and fantasy secondary worlds, but we wanted to change gears a little and talk about contemporary world building. And this is actually one of Kate's fortes. She has many, and this is why we are so grateful she's on here to help us out with this. So first off, what are we talking about? Contemporary stories, they take place in a world we're familiar with. So why do we need to concentrate on world building? I think it's important that we concentrate on world building with contemporary stories because they are going to give you all the credibility that your readers are hoping for when they're reading a contemporary story. Because it is set in the real world, a reader's BS meter is going to go off really quickly if they find things that are incongruent with the area where they live or an area where they've visited before. So if you're in Chicago and it's never raining no one's going to believe you. Or if it's in Sterling, Alberta, Canada, and there's no wind whatsoever that pushes you against the fence when you're walking into your school, no one's going to believe you. Those little details, I think, make such a huge difference in making sure it's an immersive story, but making sure that it's a plausible story too. We just want anything that keeps people from throwing our books across the room. And I feel like making sure that your book feels firmly rooted in the real world with a lot of familiar details, sensory moments, a setting that is plausible. I think those types of things are what keep readers unknowingly invested in a story. They're not the types of things that are always on the forefront of their minds, but they're definitely the type of things that will bump someone out so far of a story that they may not want to pick it back up again. I think that it's really easy to assume that if you're in a contemporary world that you don't need to spend as much time on this because everybody lives in the contemporary world. But based on what it is you're writing about, it's going to look very different. I just read two books. One was set in like the backwoods of Montana. It's called Wolves, Boys and Other Things That Might Kill Me, which I actually really liked because I lived in Montana and had contact with Yellowstone wolves and will not like direct contact. I did see one once. Yay. (laughs) I was on a run. It was scary. Not doing that again. Um, (laughs) 
But I really liked all of the things that they brought to the forefront, just like you're talking about. This person obviously had done the research or was from a place that is actively dealing with that issue where you have farmers who are attacking people with shovels and more people die by shovel than shotgun in Montana. Did you know that? I didn't. And it's usually over like water rights. Anyway, I'm going to get off of this. But I also recently read a book called um, We Regret to Inform You. These are both high school kids who are dealing with like trying to get into college and stuff but one is in like a dc prep school and one is like wolves so there's a very very different vibe to what's going on and that research you're talking about is really important to making that an authentic feeling to the book and also the things that matter to those two different characters are very different yeah I, I was thinking about how we say a lot that character moves plot, but I think it's also really important to remember that context informs character. Where you're living and the world building that has to be done for each of these characters' environments is really going to affect the sort of things they're deciding and the sort of opinions that they have and the information that gets relayed to us as the audience. So I was thinking about Two books, The Poet X and Long Way Down, are both beautiful novels in verse about a teen living in a city who has to make a really tough decision. And the places that they're living in and the decisions that they're making are super different from each other. And by giving us really authentic world building for that, we're able to understand what's going on in their brains. And it makes it a much more engaging read and just more believable. Mm-hmm. So how do writers then go about doing that research for a particular area? Do you Google the heck out of it or do you read memoirs or what's your process, Kate? Yeah, so research is my biggest step before I can start writing a book. I pre-write with research more than I even outline or worry about the plot. I feel like if until I've done my research, I don't actually know what my plot can be fully. And that's kind of a weird thing to say, but I'll give you the example of, uh, so those first two books that I wrote, Seeking Mansfield and Shoot the Moon, they both take place in Chicago. And Chicago is a very interesting place. There are dozens and dozens of very unique neighborhoods, and each neighborhood is completely distinct from the neighborhood that's right beside it. So it's not like where I live in Arizona, if you go from Gilbert to Chandler to Ahwatukee, yeah, they're teeny, teeny bit different, but they're not really at all different, you know? In Chicago, it's the difference between an area being like 65% Puerto Rican and the next area could be like 72% Asian, specifically Korean with a few Thai immigrants. It's fascinating. And so until I knew my backdrop enough, I didn't know what I could tell, what I could do with this story. So for me, I have to know my setting first off. So I'll determine where I want the book to take place. And sometimes that can be kind of a mood atmospheric sort of thing. Like if I I have a Southern Gothic novel that I have on the shelf right now because it needs a ton of work. And that feeling is what I wanted to evoke. So I researched areas that had this really far off remote kind of vibe where you could find a plantation where you could have a compelling kind of ghost story with slave roots that you want, you know, that we really, I really wanted to explore that idea of what kind of things could haunt you and that sort of thing. Yeah, there's an element of that being paranormal, but in my book, there was nothing actually paranormal. Oh, shoot. Spoiler if that thing ever gets published. (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) But, you know, I think that it can be a lot based on your mood that you want to evoke, but it could also be like was just said, it could be what you want to accomplish with your character too. So if you have a character who needs to be really pulled apart and is needs to suffer really physically, then put setting something in the Arizona summer, like my friend Abigail Johnson, who wrote If I Fix You was her debut. And it feels like hot Arizona summer on every single page to the point that you're you're almost blistering. You know, you feel the sunburn. And I think that kind of thing If you know that setting, you can get those kind of details and you can make them inform the story. You can make them add suffering to your character or add 
opportunities to your character. So again, in Seeking Mansfield, I have a main character who really wants to be a director in a, in a theater. So as I was looking up all of the different areas in Chicago, I found that there's this old town Chicago where so many performers really got their start. And it was an area that hasn't completely gentrified yet. And it fit really well with what I wanted my main characters, the family that she lives with, what I wanted them to be like. It's a reflection of them. It provides her with opportunities. It's just this really nice balance and it feels very distinctly Chicago to me. So it was fun getting to research that kind of thing. So for me, setting is always the first part. I even will find houses like on you know, Zillow or Trulia or whatever and set my house where my character lives based on that. And I find real schools and I might not call them that school, but it's that school. You know, not every book I'll do this with, I'm sure, but that's how I've done it so far. So now we all have to go through your books and figure <laughs> out which house. Yes, I can send you <laughs> the listing. <laughs> yeah. Well, I love that because I feel like not every reader will be able to tell if that's authentic, but some readers will and that will that will make a world of difference to them. Mm -hmm. So what then, other than setting, are some key aspects of world building in a contemporary sense? Culture. So much culture. When someone gets a piece of your culture wrong, it is the most grating thing that you can possibly experience. And that is a tough one on research purposes, I think, for many reasons. But I would say that where possible, speaking from like something that you've experienced or people that you are close to, that makes things really easy. Mm-hmm. I think culture is a really good point. And it can extend so much beyond just the culture of an area. You look at a book mm-hmm. like Mean Girls or a movie like Mean Girls, and that school has its own very distinct culture. Exactly. And so if you know an area, I mean, not every high school is going to be the exact same, right? And you're never going to have a school where it's so stereotypical that the band geeks are the loners over here and there's the tech nerds. And, you know, that's just not how it works ever. Mm -hmm. But knowing how your school would work, especially if it's a reflection of the city or the state that you live in. I mean, a school in Montana is going to be so wildly different than a school in New York. And if you've went to school in New York, you cannot, with any sort of credibility, write what it would be like to go to school in Montana if you haven't done your research. Mm-hmm. Or even just family culture, like the way siblings interact with each other. That sort of thing varies from family to family, and that's going to make a huge difference in the authenticity of a book. Mm-hmm. And I feel like to be authentic doesn't mean it has to be exactly true. You can still make things up, but if you get those dynamics right, if you if you hit at least something on the head, people are going to be far more likely to believe it. Mm-hmm. Well, and I also think that authenticity comes from details Mm -hmm. like in the poetics i read that book and it made me just bawl because it is an amazing book and i could relate so well to some of the things she was talking about but that book is not anything to do with anything i've ever experienced in real life and so those details will both communicate like feelings and things that will will apply widely but will also very narrowly apply to the person that you are writing about Mm -hmm. So then the big question is, how do we go about doing this? So we know what we need to put in our story, but how do we put this in our story? Yeah, do you have to like be on the ground? Like, do you go visit Chicago? In that case, I had been to Chicago several times. I used to work for a company where I would go out to Chicago several times a year. And so I was familiar enough with the area that I knew. I knew enough to start. But in times where I haven't known an area, I'll talk to people who've lived there. Like my book, Lovestruck, that just came out. I set that in Flagstaff, Arizona. And I've been there a few times because I live in Arizona. But I actually haven't spent a whole lot of time. You know, we, whenever we go up, we just go on a hike and then we go get a burger and then we leave. So I talked to a friend who had gone to school there and she talked 
to me about like how the city is essentially divided into there's like kind of the campus side and there's kind of the, you know, more residential side. And she told me just a lot of cool landmarks and cool restaurants and cool features. So then the next time that I was able to go visit Flagstaff, I knew what to look for. And that definitely was really helpful. However, I've also made up a, a town before in a in one of my whips. I have just a town that's in kind of a Tahoe style area. But in that case, I still looked up towns that I would think would be similar to it in, you know, within 100 miles or so to try to get a feel for what that would look like. And in that case, that means, you know, not just the setting of obviously, as I've mentioned, like that 7,000 times, but that's things like what types of trees are native to an area. There are certain forests like maple ash forest. There are only two types of trees in most forests and they're, and they're like, they depend on each other for their survival. And I didn't know that. I always thought like forests had 500 different types of trees. But as you're, as you're researching this kind of thing, you find out your weather patterns. You're going to find out your socioeconomic kind of statuses that you'll find in that, in that town. You'll need to find out your demographics. And then that is the type of thing that as you're writing, you can say, okay, well, there's probably about 25% black kids in this school. There's probably about 17% Latinos. Having that sort of distinction and that, that helps make sure that your diversity is authentic, but it also helps make sure that everything just feels like a really normal, regular story to a kid who would live in a similar enough area. That's what I was thinking about because Maggie Steve Fodder, none of her books are set in real places. Like Henrietta and Thisbe and Bicharado aren't real towns, but they all, like I could probably point to a point on a map and be like, this is exactly what happens. And I know Maggie Stiefvater could do that. And I think what you're saying is exactly right, where having a sense of what an area is like allows you to create an alternate version of that area yeah. for your manuscript. Yeah, totally. I'm from the Tahoe area, so I'll be uh, watching you. Yeah. <laughs> then I'll have you read it. <laughs> <laughs> I have a book that I'm actually setting in my hometown because it's such a cool little touristy place that I love. I mean, not Grass Valley itself. I'm actually setting it in Nevada City, which is just above that. But I called one of my friends who grew up in Nevada City itself just to get his take on like, what did you do when you were a kid? I know what I did when I was a kid because I lived in, I lived down the hill from you and it was different. I had a backyard and you didn't and like things like that. And so it it actually made a world of difference to just talk to somebody who had lived in the town. So if you can talk to somebody, even if it's like a librarian or or, or someone a cop, from when you or a cop, there you go. Because <laughs> I just had my great moment of talking to a cop. So <laughs> hey, I awesome. mean, people like that a lot of times. It was very... helpful. It was really helpful. Yeah, people so are... go well, out of your comfort zone and ask questions, and people are usually really good about helping you answer them. That's actually a good person to talk to. If there are any policemen in your story, you should talk to the policeman from an area <laughs> yeah. like that because the dynamics are very different yes. <laughs> in different places in the country. Yeah. And I think in addition to all of that, if you're talking to people who are from that area, they're going to be able to tell you what the primary industry is. And if you know what the primary industry is, you know what types of jobs teens are going to have. So my husband's from a town in Nevada where mining is huge. There's like silver mines all over the place. So his brother's worked in mines like people work in mines still you know this is like 1905 <laughs> and I totally would never have thought that was a thing in my tiny little village like I was a lifeguard at the pool because there are like 11 jobs you work for the city or the village you work in the <laughs> library you know that there's just a few different places you could work so if you know that area you know where you could plausibly set all of your I mean all of your conflict and that kind of thing will create conflict that you didn't know existed like if you have a character whose older brother works in a mine all of a sudden you have 
totally different home life than if he worked getting tips at the local Olive Garden or something, just because he's cranky mm-hmm. and he, you know, he's going to have shift work and he's going to be sleeping weird times. And there's always going to be like dirt everywhere. And the mom's going to be freaking out. You know, it's just like you have built in little conflicts that make your story feel so authentic and that fit the story so nicely. So I think that kind of stuff just makes the story so much richer and more immersive. That's really true. So what I'm kind of drawing from all these comments then is that a very important part of research is not just the written word, but also drawing on the connections you have with other people to kind of mine their brains and see what life was like from their angle. So this is about all the time we have for this part of the podcast where we move on to our submission section. Quick review, we like to keep this non-prescriptive. And if you'd like to check out the text of the submission and see all of our notes, check on our website, litservicepodcast.wixsite.com slash litnation. If you would like a first chapter critique from us, you can find our submission guidelines there. So a quick summary of this submission, still mourning her dad's death, 17-year-old Eliza tries to pull it together to make cheer captain for her senior year, only to fall during practice when she notices her boyfriend, who is supposed to be dead, watching. So what are some things we liked about this submission? There were some really great voicey moments. I think the one that made all of us stop is... The one that says football is stitched into the fabric of our burnt orange onesies and stamped on our sippy cups, which is a really nice way of saying we've loved football since birth, but mm-hmm. it's more exciting than that. <laughs> well, and I, I don't have a really great idea about football in Texas, but even from the outside, I know that Texas and football are Friday something that lights. can't be. Well, I haven't even watched that. And I know, you know about, it exists, right? <laughs> I know it exists. That's all I've got. Yeah. <laughs> So, I mean, just based on what we were saying earlier, I feel like that was a good jump into your world building. I really feel like this author did his or her research really well. Um, just in little things, like for instance, when the main character's car won't stop start because of the humidity in the morning and she lifts up the hood and she does something specific that I can't now recall. And then it starts, but it sounded plausible. And I don't know one end of a car from another. So I was impressed with that. That was a good character build too, because we know that she knows about cars. Yeah, competent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I really like how the tragedy is introduced with, I mean, her dad has recently passed away and it is introduced in a conversation with her brother that is very much a conversation between siblings where they're kind of insulting each other and not being super nice to each other. But the tragedy and how much it has affected her really comes out. She won't get rid of this car that won't start in the morning because it was her dad's car. I liked that. I'll agree with that. I think a lot of times when you're trying to work in information like that, it comes across as kind of gimmicky, but this made sense for them to be talking about it. It felt really really natural. Yeah, she never takes this aside and says, now let me tell you what happens, which yeah. if you can avoid that. And and like the brother is like, you remember how dad died yeah. because we shouldn't. <laughs> yeah, I liked all the sensory details yeah. too. You guys mentioned like she talks about the humidity and the heat and that felt really nice to as a, as a way to just kind of get us into it immediately. I really liked that she picked a town called Pflugerville and I, and I know that's a real place. I think it's pronounced Pflugerville. That was just like you, you get the sense instantly by her picking that town instead of any other, you know, Tomball or whatever, that this is, this is like a small town too, because, you know, there's no metro areas really called Pflugerville, right? <laughs> um, I, I like how she, the conversation felt really authentic, like you guys said. And I like that she had her goal right from the very beginning, like we knew exactly what she wanted. And then she had that hiccup really early too, so that there was instantly something she had to overcome. And we see how she overcomes. I I liked that problem solving moment for her. I also really liked the line about their high school holding the winningest high school record in all the whole God-fearing, gun-toting, football-loving state of Texas. I thought that was a really fun voicey moment. Reader response, it also made me feel like she doesn't like that about it. But she's also going out for the cheer captain 
ship, however you say that, I don't know. She wants to be the cheer captain. So I was wondering, and, and this isn't something that's a critique. It, it makes me start to have questions, which I think are good. It makes me wonder if she wants to be the cheer captain because her friends are in it or because she needs to accomplish something because of all the bad things that have happened or if she actually like thinks it's all really dumb. I don't know. It's a good point. Then if we're good to move on to things that might need a second look, I would say probably my biggest note on this submission I love the twist ending. I thought that was exciting at the end how her boyfriend is real, but I felt almost a little bit betrayed or a little bit set up because earlier on when she listens to her boyfriend's voicemail, she says she feels like a nervous pl- pleasure. So she's still attracted to him, still excited about this relationship. And then she talks about him in present tense and their goals in present tense. And so honestly, my first reaction when he comes back and he's not dead supposedly on the field is, is he a vampire? Was she just confused <laughs> because he was in the sun, but not because he was alive? So that was probably my biggest note. Yeah. When she listens to the voicemail, she has like a physical reaction that's positive. And she also says, Alex is the best. We've only dated for, we've only dated for two years, but it's meant to be, which this is an overstatement, but I was like, is he dead in her basement? Like, did she, was she surprised because he like (laughs) got out somehow and is watching her cheering? Like, is this a serial killer story? I don't know. And I'm assuming that that's a way overstatement and that we're just trying to get like a twist ending to the end of a first chapter. But um, because it's set up the way that it is, it did feel very jarring to me. I think it's that sense of giddiness while she's listening to the voicemail that makes it so when you go back after you've gotten to the end where he's dead that you think, can he really be dead? Because I was just thinking about The Chaos of Standing Still, which is another YA book about someone who's lost a friend and they have like a text message from the friend that they haven't read. And I think a sense of gravity, I think, to it would make it feel a little bit more real. But that's prescriptive, so feel free to ignore it. <laughs> yeah, I had the sense more of that he was abusive or something like that. Because, you know, he's apologizing for something in the voicemail. And then when he sees when she yeah. sees him and she's so petrified, I was like, oh, he's going to beat her up, man. Like something's going to happen. So, yeah, I, I definitely had that same vibe of, wait, but I'm confused. Why were you excited? Because he's definitely abusive. Oh, no, he's dead. Okay. So it was just a lot of confusion. <laughs> There's a spot that Max and Eliza, so they're chatting about how they're worried about how they can't meet the mortgage and mom's working two jobs and Eliza's working 50 hours a week um, and they're having a hard time paying the bills. And I got to that point and mm-hmm. I swore they were orphans before Me they mentioned the mom bit. Um just because it seemed like a strange thing for them to be talking about. So I thought that it was something they took on as like their sole responsibility and no one else could help them with yeah, it. Yeah, same here. Me too. So there was a, a moment at the end. It's right when she sees her dead boyfriend who is not dead apparently or is a twin maybe. Maybe he's a twin. Um, <laughs> a clone. A clone. There we go. Long lost cousin. Where she's in like a cheerleading pyramid in the air and it's being dropped and she like tenses up and then something happens, but I'm not sure. And I don't know if it's because I am bad at cheerleading or if it's just because the blocking isn't super clear. She like cracks her head, but it doesn't say that it's against anything in particular. And her spotter, she's trying to look for her spot. I just, I didn't understand what was going on. I had that same reaction so. during that part. And a little bit when she's talking to Max, there were a few times where I couldn't tell who was talking. I don't know if the formatting was just a little funny or what it was, but there were a few times where I thought, wait, is that still Max talking or is that Eliza talking? And their voices aren't distinct enough yet, you know, in the first chapter to know. This is a small note, but when they're discussing the mortgage, and this is more just a reader reaction, um, it talks about how Eliza is working 50 plus hours a week and her mom has two jobs and they still can't meet the mortgage. So I guess I'm expecting with that that either they have a really nice house or some serious medical bills they're paying off. So that's a that's a hefty mortgage. Okay, thanks to this author for submitting. I, I thought this was a really excellent submission and I 
I'm excited to see more of it someday, hopefully. So, Kate, thank you so much for coming on the show. I know I learned a lot about contemporary world building. <laughs> Thanks for having me, guys. I really appreciate it. Our next guest will be Livia Blackburn, a neuroscientist turned New York Times bestselling author of the Midnight Thief series and the Rosemarked series. If you'd like a first chapter critique from Livia, get it to us by July 11th, which is the day after this episode goes live. Thanks go to Jason Akinaka, who did our sound design for this episode, and also to our intern, Aaron Lee. You can listen to this show wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us ratings and reviews and share with your writer friends. If you want to ask us questions or tell us we're awesome, you can find us on Twitter at LitService or on Facebook and Instagram at LitServicePodcast. Or you can email us at LitServicePodcast at gmail.com. LitService is brought to you by Writer's Clearinghouse. Writer's Clearinghouse empowers authors and agents by providing low-cost, professional evaluations of entire manuscripts that tell you exactly where your manuscript stands and what you can do to improve it. To learn more, visit www.writersch.com. Listeners of LitService will receive 20% off an evaluation by using the code LitService20 at purchase. For LitService, thanks for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks.